All right. Are you guys ready for the very last sermon of race, sex, and politics in the church? You're not sure. You're not sure if you are. We, we have been in a series. If you're a guest here, we've been in a series for the last three weeks called Race, Sex, and Politics in the Church. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus's vision for ethnic unity in the church and what that means and how, how do we uh, wrestle with issues of race uh, in the church. And then last week, we talked about um, God's uh, vision for sexual wholeness. And we talked about um, sex in the church and, and what does that mean? And, and, and it turns out that people still came back after last week. So today, we'll see, um, because today we're going to look at what Jesus says about politics, what Jesus says about politics. And I know that politics is a very, uh, it's a very sensitive issue. It's a very tender issue for people. So I just want you to know that if I say anything that offends you today, uh, you just please feel free to email me at Claude Bennett at gmail.com. Um, Claude Bennett at gmail.com. Uh, <laughs> Claude was one of our founding elders. I'm sorry, Claude, wherever you are. Um, no, seriously though, if you have questions on these topics and these issues, I, you know, listen, I get emails, you know, I've absorbed a few emails. It's, it's not going to hurt my feelings. If you send me an email, we can have a discussion. Okay. Um, because I know this is a tough, a tough issue for people. So I want to start with a question. Actually, let me start with prayer. If we're going to talk about politics, we need to, we need to get a little more prayer before we go in. Okay. Let's start with prayer. God, we love you. We honor you. We praise you. And we need you today, God, um, because we're going to talk about things that uh, are uncomfortable and difficult to talk about. And, um, and, and all of us, uh, many of us, I would say, wrestle with political questions and with friendships and family members uh, that see things differently than us. And so I ask that you would give me wisdom to speak your truth. And I ask, Lord God, that you would give all of us um, hearts to receive. Uh, open hearts and open ears to receive what you have to say. We thank you and praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with a question. You don't have to raise your hand. You can, you can subtly nod uh, on this one. But how many of you um, over the last few years have engaged in some sort of, uh, let's say, conflict uh, with a friend, a family member, an acquaintance, a frenemy, a Facebook friend, over the issue of politics. You can, you can raise your hand if you want, or you can just nod, or you can just steer in the headlights right at me and don't give me any cues. Um, significant disagreement. We've, we've all, many of us have experienced this over the last few years. Uh, Jocelyn Kiley, as an associate director of research at the Pew Research Center, said that political polarization is more intense now than at any point in modern history. She said that nearly 80% of Americans now either have just a few or no friends at all across the political aisle, and the animosity goes both directions. I'm going to show you a graph of how people responded to the Pew, uh, Pew Research poll, um, if you've got that. So according to Pew Research, only 3% of Trump supporters say they have a lot of friends who support the other candidate. About 19% have some friends, 38% say they have just a few friends, and 39% say none. I've got nobody on the other side uh, that is my friend. And the same is true essentially for Biden supporters. About 3% of Biden supporters say they have a lot of friends who support the other candidate. 19% say they have some friends, and 35% uh, say they have just a few, and 42% say none, zero. 
um, across, across the aisle. I added those up. It came to 99% on both of those in case the math people are out there. So I think there might've been like some point something, something percentages. I don't know how math works, but that's what I figured out. Um, one of the respondents, Shema Davis recalled when he unfriended one of his high school buddies from 25 years. And he said this quote, straight up, dude, I'm done. Lose my number. Close quote. Uh, Another respondent, Joni Jensen, said this regarding a friend who disagreed with her over politics. She said, I just hung up on my end and proceeded to just block him in every possible way. Another respondent, Ricardo DeForest, said this about members of his family who uh, who he had a political disagreement with. He said, quote, I hate to say it because family is everything, but I disown them. In my mind, they are not my family anymore, close quote. Another recent poll by the Public Research, uh, Public Religion Research Institute shows that eight out of ten, uh, eight out of ten Republicans believe that, Demo- believe that the Democratic Party has been taken over by socialists. And eight in ten Democrats believe the Republican Party has been taken over by racists. Tanya Israel, a, a professor in counseling, at uh, University of California said, one thing that conservatives, conservatives and liberals have in common is that they both tend to view themselves as eminently fair and right, and the other side as deeply irrational, flawed, and brainwashed. People on the... <laughs> you guys resonated. You're all like, well, that's true, right? <laughs> people on the left are often quick to characterize people on the right as Nazis, racists, misogynists, and homophobes. People on the right are quick to characterize people on the left as socialists, Marxists, reverse racists, and baby killers. So, yes, you might say that we have come to an impasse culturally when it comes to politics in our culture. We've come, we've come to an impasse. And the views that are held by the culture, unfortunately, are largely held among Christians as well. We've, we have, as a church, as Christians around the world, uh, become very, very isolated and alienated along political lines. So today, what I want to do is I want to preach a sermon based upon what Jesus has to teach us about politics. And I've titled today's sermon, The Elephant and the Donkey in the Room. <laughs> I have been waiting for so long to preach this sermon with that sermon title. I could just close in prayer right now and I'm satisfied. I want to begin today by looking at how Jesus approached politics because what you're about to see is that the politics in the days of Jesus were as rancorous and toxic and vitriolic as they are today. And I want to I'm going to start the sermon by reading a scripture that upon first blush, you may think that is the most boring scripture I have ever seen. I don't see any value in that scripture. Uh, I don't see any, uh, anything, you know, unique or powerful or important in that scripture. But as we explore the scripture a little bit, I think what you're going to find is that the scripture is revolutionary. And, uh, and my prayer is that it will alter fundamentally the way you view politics. And the scripture is found in Matthew chapter 10. And it's verses two through four. It is a very boring scripture on the face. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip, and Bartholomew, 
Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. That's the whole scripture. That's the whole thing. And as you're digesting that, you might say, well, that's not very provocative. That doesn't have anything to do with politics. But I want to show you something that when I read that a few years ago, that jumped out at me, and I want to share it with you um, because I think it, I think it might it might change your mind about that scripture. The scripture that we just read lists all of Jesus' apostles. And as I looked at their names, I noticed that many of them, or most of them, were identified by an affiliation that they did not choose. They were identified by their region, by their last name, or by their family membership, right? Who they were related to. For instance, Andrew, the brother of Simon, right? That's, that's who he is. He's a, the brother of Simon. James and John, the son of Zebedee, James, son of Alphaeus, and so forth. These were non-chosen affiliations, but two of Jesus's closest disciples are identified by their chosen affiliations. I want you to look at the scripture again. I'm going to highlight two, uh, two of, the, of the apostles. These are the names of the 12 uh, of the 12 apostles, Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. That's not Simon Peter. It's Simon, the zealot. Both of these individuals are identified by their political organization, a political organization that they chose to affiliate with. So I'm going to start with Simon, the zealot. Let's just get into him and see what he's all about. Simon, the zealot, was a member of what was called the Zealot Party. This was a, a first century political extremist party in Israel that advocated violence to accomplish their agenda. The Zealot Party had started around the time that Jesus was born when a group of Israelites refused to pay a poll tax that had been imposed upon them by the Roman government. The Zealot Party was founded by a political revolutionary, a guy named uh, Judas of Galilee. And Judas of Galilee told his followers do not pay that tax. He believed that paying the tax would mean they were siding with the Roman government. They were unfaithful, therefore, to God. So Judas and his followers took up arms and started a revolt. The Roman government quickly crushed uh, the revolt, but the agenda of the Zealot Party had continued to survive into Jesus' time. Their agenda was very simple to rid Israel of Roman occupation and to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. They were called theocratic nationalists. They wanted no God or no king but God. The historian Josephus characterizes them as a fanatical sect that was determined to achieve the goal of Roman expulsion through, listen to this, assassination, terrorism, and the murder of Roman citizens, as well as the murder of any Jewish brothers and sisters who they believed to be Roman sympathizers. That's the political party that Simon the Zealot was in. This is one of Jesus's closest disciples, and he is in this Zealot party. Then you got somebody on the other end of the, of the spectrum. You have Matthew the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector, was not just a Roman sympathizer. He was a Roman collaborator. He wasn't willing only to support the Roman poll tax. He actually worked to collect it for the Roman government from his fellow countrymen. He had chosen, Matthew had, to align himself with the Roman Empire. That was his chosen affiliation, his chosen vocation. So you've got, on one hand, Simon the Zealot that says, 
kill all Romans and kill all Roman sympathizers. And then you've got Matthew, the tax collector, who says, I work for the Romans. I collect taxes for them. I am on their side in this debate. And Jesus says, I want you on my team, Simon. Matthew, I want you on my team. I want both of you extreme ends of the political spectrum, the most extreme ends of Jesus' day. Jesus said, I want you both on my team. The modern equivalent would be, this, bear with me on this one. The modern equivalent would be if Jesus said, Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow, I want you both on my team. <laughs> Bernie and Sean, I want you both on my team. Wait, I should have done that the other way. Bernie. Oh, wait, okay. Uh, Donald and Hillary, I want you both. That's, that's what it would be like. How is this possible? How is it possible that Jesus could actively recruit people with wildly conflicting, and I mean seriously conflicting. I can't go into all the research. This is going to be, I can't go into all the research, but, but some of the zealots were called dagger men. They would keep daggers in their cloaks. And when they would get into a crowd uh, full of Romans and or Roman sympathizers at a given moment, they would all pull out their daggers and kill even their own countrymen because they were that attached to their political affiliation. How can Jesus bring somebody like that and somebody like that into his chosen 12? How can he do that? Um, the answer, I believe, lies in a story a few chapters later in Matthew 22. It's a story that you may be familiar with, but you may learn, as I did, that there's some profound depth to this story that I didn't realize until I began to study it this week. Matthew 22, 15 through 22 says, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So you got Pharisees and Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. We know that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. If somebody's buttering you up this much, they're about to take you out at the knees, just so you know, all right? They're like, you're, you're, a, you're a great man and you love the Lord, right? So tell us, they said, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax or not? Is it right to pay the tax or not? Now, let me just give you a quick backdrop on Pharisees and Herodians. Pharisees are also a political party, a political and a religious party. They're not as extreme as the zealots, but let's just say they have zealot leanings. Okay, they're zealot light. They, they would have been in private okay with Simon the zealot, and they would have been appalled by Matthew, the tax collector. Now, now, that's the Pharisees. Who are the Herodians? Herodians are loyalists to Herod. Herod had been set up by the Roman government to rule as the king of the Jews. So while Her Herodians are not tax collectors, they would be more comfortable with the tax collector crowd than they would be with the Simon, the zealot crowd. And the tax that they are asking Jesus about is the very tax that launched the revolution 30 or so years ago. This is the tax that the zealot party says, do not pay. In fact, kill anybody who thinks you should pay it. And the tax collector party says, pay it, because I'm coming to collect it. This is what they're asking Jesus about. And what the Herodians and the Pharisees wanted to know is, is Jesus on the side of the zealots or is Jesus on the side of the tax collectors? Whose party are you in, Jesus? What party do you choose? Next verse says this, but Jesus, 
knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is on this and whose inscription is on this? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. What is, Ju- what is Jesus doing in this story? He's, he's being asked a very simple question. Do we pay the tax or not? This is a yes or no, right? You know how people like to pin you, pin you against the wall with a yes or no? Because they, they, they've, they've got an agenda and they really want to get like, what? <clears throat> right? And so they're saying to him, is it yes or is it a no? But instead, he doesn't say yes or he doesn't say no. He says, give back to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and give back to God what belongs to God. What is he saying? All right, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. He's saying, don't confuse your political ideology with your spiritual identity. I got one groan on that. One, well, that resonated with one person. Might be the only person here next Sunday. Do not confuse your political ideology with your spiritual identity. Have you ever noticed that many of us love part of what Jesus says, but we don't all love all of what Jesus says? (laughs) Many of us reference the words of Jesus that agree with our political point of view, but we tend to ignore the words of Jesus that don't align with our political point of view. I'm going to, can I just get right into the weeds with you guys on some stuff? Can we just get right in there? Okay. This might sting just a little bit, but hopefully it'll sting everybody equally. That's the goal. Sting in a good way. Cut like a scalpel. Um, Right-leaning Christians often care most deeply about the teachings of Scripture on marriage, sexuality, and the sanctity of human life. And out of those deeply held theological convictions, they will choose who to vote for. But if they're not careful, they'll be tempted to say, if you don't vote the way I do, you can't possibly love God. You can't possibly be a Christian if you don't vote my way. Left-leaning Christians often care most deeply about the words of Jesus on issues of poverty and racial justice. And out of those deeply held theological convictions, they will choose who to vote for. But if they're not careful, they'll be tempted to say, if you don't vote the way I do, you can't possibly love God. You can't possibly be a Christian if you don't vote my way. Green-leaning Christians often care most deeply what the Bible has to say about caring for creation and about wisely stewarding the planet. And out of those deeply held theological convictions, they will choose who to vote for. But if they're not careful... They'll be tempted to say, if you don't vote the way I do, you can't possibly love God. You can't possibly be a Christian if you don't vote my way. I let the libertarians off the hook just because for time, for the sake of time. But the same applies to you. In other words, if we're not careful, we can all be tempted to confuse our political ideology with our spiritual identity. And we can dismiss, demean, deride, and sometimes dehumanize our brothers and sisters in Christ who hold deeply theological convictions about issues that are not as pressing to us. And when we do, we sever unity in the body of Christ because we have confused our political ideology with our spiritual 
identity. And that is what's happening in this story. The zealots wanted God to be their king. They wanted to bring about the kingdom of God. They wanted to be free to worship as they wanted to worship. And they thought that if you pay the tax, then you must be on the side of Caesar and you must be in opposition to God. If you pay the tax, you must not love God. If you loved God, you would not pay the tax. You would revolt and fight the Romans. You cannot love God if you're willing to pay the tax. That's what the zealots believed. And on the other hand, many of the tax collectors also wanted God to be their king. They also wanted to bring about the kingdom of God. They wanted to be free to worship how they wanted to worship without interference. But they believed that paying the tax was the only way that the Romans would allow them to continue worshiping. They believe that if you don't pay the tax, the Roman government is going to destroy the temple, is going to destroy our people, is going to, they're going to destroy our families. If we want to worship God in peace, we've got to pay the tax. You must not love God if you're not willing to pay the tax. So both sides held these deep theological convictions, and Jesus was saying to both of them, you both are missing the point because you've confused your political ideology with your spiritual identity. Whether you pay the tax or not is not an indication of whether or not you love God. That's a political question, not a theological question. Notice what he says. He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him the, the coin, a denarius. And he asked them, whose image, whose image and whose inscription is on this coin? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said, well, then give back to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. What he's doing is he's challenging the assumption in the question. He's saying the coin is made in the image of Caesar. The coin comes from the treasury of Caesar. The coin is made in his image. It's got his inscription. If you give something back to Caesar that belongs to him, that doesn't mean you're siding with Caesar. It just means you're returning his property to him. But then he says the really profound thing. He says, and give back to God what is God's. He's saying the coin is made in Caesar's image. You got to get this. The coin is made in Caesar's image. Whose image are you made in? We, we learned this two weeks ago and, and last week. Genesis 1, first chapter, first book of the Bible. God made mankind in his image. In the image of God, he made them. He says, you don't belong to Caesar. You belong to God. Your soul is stamped. Your life is stamped with the image of God. The image of Caesar is on the coin. The image of God is on you. God's word is stamped. His inscription is stamped into your heart. You don't belong to Caesar. You belong to God. In other words, you can give the coin back to Caesar or not. But your soul belongs to God. Your allegiance belongs to God. Your loyalty belongs to God. You, your body, your life belongs to God. Don't confuse He's saying your political ideology with your spiritual identity. Now, when you read that, you think, okay, is he saying that we shouldn't care about politics? Should we just check out of politics? That's not at all what he's saying. In fact, there was another political party that doesn't make it into this story. They're called the Essenes. The Essenes were the scribes that lived out um, along near the Dead Sea. That's where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the, the Essenes basically said, we're checking out. 
you know, we're out of here. We don't want anything to do with any politics at all. And they went and they lived in, a, in these little caves uh, and they basically took the Bible and rewrote it, rewrote it, and rewrote it a thousand times. And that's where we actually get our Bible. So they did a good thing. And, and Jesus did not condemn them. He didn't, say, he didn't say, well, you're doing the wrong thing. But he also didn't say, go do that, right? He didn't say, like, you got to check out of politics. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, put politics in his place. Be engaged in the political process, but make sure that you're doing it with a clear understanding of who you actually serve, right? Pursue the political agenda of your party, right? But only do it through the lens of the gospel. Don't look at the gospel through the lens of your political ideology. Look at your political ideology through the lens of the gospel. And that will shape the way that you view politics. Politics are important, he's saying, but they're not paramount. They're not paramount. Don't forget whose image you are made in. Should Christians care about issues like abortion and sexuality? Yes. Should Christians care about issues like poverty and racial justice? Yes. Should Christians care about creation care and wise stewardship of the planet? Yes. We should all care... Followers of Jesus should care about all of these vitally important issues and many others, but we have to be careful not to become like the zealots, not to become like the tax collectors, not to become like the Pharisees, and not to become like the Herodians who tried to trap Jesus into choosing their party because they had so tightly aligned their identity with their political party that they refused to see the image of God in their brothers and sisters who disagreed with them politically. Thank you. Seven. (laughs) We're moving up. We're moving up. As followers of Jesus, we've got to demonstrate a better and higher path when it comes to wrestling with complex and difficult political questions. We cannot sink into the toxicity and vitriol that defines the political climate of our day. We cannot. We have to be able to look across the aisle at a tax collector, a zealot, a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian, a Green Party member, and see that they are made in the image of God, that they bear God's likeness, that we might fundamentally disagree with them, but that they are a child of the Most High God, and they are worthy of dignity and respect. We have to do that. Otherwise, we have sunk to the lowest level of the culture around us. We are not a light. We are part of the darkness. Disagreement does not require disaffiliation. Disagreement does not require disunity. We must not dehumanize those with whom we disagree. We must not make our political ideology our spiritual identity. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you four ways, practical ways, quick, not long, but good, important. Take, this, take these notes. The first one is this. Here's how we do it. Less web, more word. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. Oh, I could say so much on this point. One of the consequences, the unfortunate consequences of two years in a pandemic when everybody's holed up in their house is that we all, a lot of us just kind of got in our own echo chamber, 
right? We just started listening to our preferred cable news channel and our preferred talk radio and our preferred YouTube algorithm. You know how that works, right? When you click on one, they send you one that they think you might even like better. And then they'll send you one that you might even like. Before you know it, you have so indoctrinated yourself in one side or the other. And since you've been alone for two years and haven't been able to rub shoulders with other brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with you, you've become completely cemented in your own point of view, not realizing that there's another way to see it. I know because I get your emails, y'all. <laughs> Apostle Paul says, don't do that. Brothers and sisters, Philippians 4.8, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think about those things. We got to get our minds out of the gutter and onto the glory of God, somebody. We got to pull ourselves. Otherwise, we're, we're, we're no better than the culture around us. If, and and I'm, I'm going to plug this seriously, though. 40 days of prayer and fasting. Like, get on the website and download that reading guide. There are scriptures and readings for every single day. We've been reading them around the dinner table. They're awesome. And you can just turn off Netflix and YouTube and all, for a minute and just soak in the Word of God. Get into a life group. Get engaged with it. You can still join life groups. They're happening all over the place. Get plugged in with a group of people because what you're going to learn, this is off script, but we had a, a, a life group the other day and I was talking to two brothers after the group and I, I don't know exactly where everybody stands politically, but I think we're all in slight disagreement with each other politically and it was awesome because we're having this great disagreement and this great discussion and I'm learning and they're learning. I think they're learning. I'm learning and we're all having these conversations, right? And at the end of it, man, it was just like my brother, right? And we love each other because we, we didn't confuse our political ideology for our spiritual identity, right? That happens when you get into community with the people of God studying the word of God together. So that's number one, less web, more word. Number two, fight your spiritual enemy, not your political opponent. On September 10, 1939, during World War II, a British submarine called HMS Triton destroyed another British submarine after mistakenly identifying, identifying it as a German U-boat. It fired two torpedoes into the British vessel, killing 52 of its own men. It was just one of many instances during the war of what has come to be known as friendly fire. When followers of Jesus attack other followers of Jesus because we disagree politically, we're engaging in friendly fire. We're destroying the unity of the body because we're mistaking our brothers and sisters as our enemies. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The person on the other end of the keyboard is not your enemy. It's, that's flesh and blood. That's not your enemy. But our enemy, we wrestle against rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places your political opponent's not your enemy we can pursue our political positions but we have to be careful not to mistake our political foes for our real enemies because the bible tells us we actually have a real enemy and it's not the person next to you and it's not the person at the, uh, from the church up the road. Peter tells us who it is. Be alert and if so, remind your enemy, the devil, 1 Peter 5, 8, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering.
that person with whom you have a wild disagreement, the person that you have unfriended, the person that you have cut off, that's not your enemy. That's not your real enemy. It's not your real enemy. Your real enemy is prowling around, seeking whom he may devour, trying to devour your heart. Fight your spiritual enemy, not your political opponent. Number three, clear the beam before the splinter. Man, now you're with me. Come on, people. Clear the beam before the splinter. I got an eye exam this week. I really did. Hallie Nyans, uh, the head of our hospitality program, uh, department, ministry, team, is, um, is getting her doctorate in optometry at UMSL. And I made the mistake of telling her that I've started wearing readers, wearing reader glasses now. Um, just 1.0. So I'm going slowly into this. Um, and she said, oh, well, I actually need a volunteer subject for an eye exam that I have to do. So if you need an eye exam, I can give you the eye exam, you know, under the supervision of her professors and all that. So I thought, okay, that's great. Free eye exam. Great. Two-hour eye exam. It was a very it was a thorough eye exam. I feel like she saw the back of my brain by the time. Um, but what I noticed during the eye exam is that Hallie was wearing glasses while examining my eyes. Right? Why was she wearing glasses? She was wearing glasses because it's really important for her to see clearly while she's trying to get an inspection of my eyes. If she can't see clearly, then she can't examine my eyes clearly. And I won't know if there's something wrong with my eyes because she won't be able to see it because she's not seeing clearly. In order to get a proper assessment of the condition of my eyes, she has to make sure that her eyes are clear. Are you with me? A lot of times we're eager to point out the blind spots in other people's positions, but we don't do a proper assessment of the blind spots in our own hearts and our own minds and our own lives. And Jesus warned us about this. He warned us. He said, Matthew 7, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? I mean, if Hallie had a plank in her eye during my eye exam, even if I had a speck in my eye, I'd be like, I, I might have a speck in my eye, but I can't have you taking it out. It's too dangerous because you have a plank in your eye. You can't see the speck right, right? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. I hate it how Jesus always says in these things, you hypocrite. I mean, he just throws that in there all the time, right? And I always like, he's talking to that person. He's talking to that, right? He's talking to you. <laughs> and me. Um, before we start pointing out all the flaws in the political views of others, let's just make sure that we're doing a thorough investigation of the inconsistencies in our own views. Because it's easy for us to become blinded by the political biases uh, that we hold. And we should be able, this would be great, you guys, listen to this. We should be able to, to critically analyze the positions of our own parties before throwing grenades at the other side. Like, that's really important. It's really important. If we're, come November, right, and then come 2024, as the church, we better be able to say, hey, look, I can, I can criticize the party that I'm in, right, and I, and I know the flaws there, and 
then I can criticize the, the, the views of the other side. But I can only do that if I'm seeing clearly my own stuff. Okay, last one. Ready? Serve your king, not your party. This is number four. This is how we do this. Serve your king, not your party. One of the most profound details of the story about when Jesus was discussing the tax. I love this so much. He holds up the denarius and he says, whose image, whose inscription is on the coin. And everybody knew what was on the coin. I'm going to show you the coin. This is actually a denarius from that, from that day. Can you put that? There you go. That's, that's what exactly what it looked like. And you might not be able to read it, but you can see the inscription around both sides of the coin. Let me tell you what it said. On the front side of the coin, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. And on the back side of the coin, it says, Pontiff Maxim, high priest. So the, lo- the coin literally says, Caesar is the son of God and the great high priest. That's what the coin says. Caesar is the son of God and the great high priest. Guess who else called himself the son of God and the great high priest? The guy holding up the coin, right? Jesus says, I'm the son of God. I'm the great high priest. So when Jesus says, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God, what he's really saying is, if this guy wants his pennies back, right? Give him his pennies. But give your heart, give your soul, give your mind, give your body to me. I'm the king, Jesus says. I'm the son of God. I'm the great high priest. Not Caesar, not the state, not your political party. He's saying you can work out your politics however you need to, but don't belong to your political party. You belong to my kingdom. He's saying if, you, if, if, if I know your politics before I know your religion, then your politics has become your religion. He told Simon the Zealot, I have a vision that's bigger than your Zealot party. It's going to last longer than your Zealot party. And I want to invite you to my vision. And he told Matthew, the tax collector, I have a vision that's bigger than the Roman Empire. And I want to invite you to my vision, to my kingdom, because the scripture says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word and his kingdom will never pass away. The Zealot party is in the dustbin of history. It doesn't exist. It was the most important thing to Simon the Zealot. It doesn't exist anymore. The Roman Empire was the most important thing to Matthew the tax collector. It doesn't exist anymore. It's in the dustbin of Roman, of of, of history. The Republican Party is going to pass away. The Democratic Party is going to pass away. The Green Party is going to pass away. Libertarian Party is going to pass away. At some point, y'all, the United States of America is going to pass away, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. So where do you want to plant your flag? Where do you want your loyalty to lie? Where do you want your place of eternal trust and hope to lie? With whom do you identify? Because this is what I want for us as a church. This is what I want. I want us to be a church where we see our politics through the lens of the gospel, not where we see the gospel through the lens of our politics. I want us to be a church where we can have candid, honest, authentic discussions and even disagreements about politics while maintaining the bond of brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. I want us to be a different kind of place than the culture around us. I don't want us to be a place where we are willing to demean, degrade, and dehumanize other people with whom we disagree politically. 
Let us never become a church that is co-opted by one of the political parties or another. Let us never become a church that has a political litmus test for entry. Let us be a church where Jesus is our king and where we are all brothers and sisters in him. I'm going to end I'm going to end this series where where I started it. We've gone through some some heavy heavy stuff. We've gone through some some fields that are pretty pretty hard to plow. And I want to end where the Bible ends. I want to end where the Bible says it all ends. I read this a couple weeks ago. I want to I want to end with it here. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. This is John the Revelator seeing the vision of, of heaven and what's it going to be like. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Here's what I want to say to us. If we are truly going to be a church that brings about God's kingdom on earth, we must never become the party of the elephant and we must never become the party of the donkey. If we are truly going to fulfill the mission of bringing heaven to earth, of making God's kingdom on earth like it is in heaven, then we have got to become people of the Lamb. People of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. Your word is so good. It's so rich. So, so nourishing. We thank you for the way it it just pierces our hearts. It pulls out the cancers in our soul, cleanses us, heals us, makes us whole. Today, God, I would just ask that the word, your word, would go forth into our ears. Reach deep down into the deeply held views and visions and ideas that we have and just shift us, God. Remind us that it is your image upon us. Not the image of our party, not the image of our politics, not the image of our political platform or political ideology. It is your image that is placed upon us. And it is your image that is placed upon our political opponents. Let us do this differently. Let us do it like you would do it. Let us follow your playbook. Let us follow your template, Jesus. Let us become more and more and more like you. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen.